All right, welcome to the podcast. We're here with Ace Barrels. We're here with Mark and Nathan. Um, I knew about Ace Barrels from the Voodoo 22 uh, rifles, um, but I'm finding out today there's a whole nother side of Ace Barrels. Uh, Nathan or Mark, do you guys want to uh, tell us a little bit about how Ace Barrels got started? It's probably more me than, than Nathan. Um, it was started about 12 and a half years ago. And uh, the reason to do that was uh, my partner and I wanted to build, and he definitely wanted to build, one of the best barrels you get your hands on because all the years, uh, uh, 35 years or 40 years of being bench rest shooter, he noticed how well barrels, certain barrels, performed than others and why. He ended up coming to me because of uh, the technical knowledge that I had, and we went ahead and discussed that. In the process, I built rifle barrel uh, guns, uh, bolt-action rifles, long-range rifles for 35 years by that time. So we started off of that premise, and the other one was out of it is that we're not going to build any equipment that won't do exactly what we want it to do. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, it's got to be real high quality. I know that at times, uh, and that this is to Jerry's, uh, uh, I guess, what you want to call his advantage, or one of the things I liked about Jerry, is if there was something wrong, with a barrel that he was working on that day, he might not sleep that night because mm-hmm. he don't want it to go out. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a kind of type A personality kind of guy. But from doing that, we now have something that's very consistent, very, very precise inside, and built a certain way for shooters. And since we're all shooters, we like good stuff just wow. like anybody else does. Wow. And so that's where we started from. I think the barrel is the most important part of the rifle build. Oh, yeah. Oh. It's, I always have a dumb analogy, but I always think it's like I love football. I think there, you can have a good coach, to, you know, action throwing in, the, putting in the play, but if the quarterback doesn't throw a good pass, nothing else matters. Oh. That's the barrel. Oh. Mm-hmm. You guys cut your teeth from my ass. Not cut your teeth. That's the wrong terminology. Where I figured out where you guys were from was 22. Can you tell us the big differences between making a 22 barrel against making a center fire barrel? Well, there there is some differences, but not a whole bunch. One of the things that one reason why our barrels are the way they are on the inside is smoothness really counts in 22 rimfires. The actual physical smoothness of the barrel does help you out an awful lot. So that's one thing. And the other one is, is of course, most people look at a centerfire gun, and um, uh, you will buy that gun. It'll be made in something. Most people who get into Wildcats or any of the higher higher you know guns for long range, they're going to load for it. Mm-hmm. So that you can actually you can have more discrepancies in a centerfire barrel because you can load for it. Mm-hmm. You can't load for twenty two rimfires, mm-hmm. so you have to build the barrel around the ammunition. Mm-hmm. Totally, you know, backwards to what oh, you're yeah. doing anything mm-hmm. else. So we just we uh, came up with a process so we could control that really well, and it's just in everything. That's that's the way all of our, our barrels are made. They're concerned with smoothness. Uh, we're we're considered uh, very concerned with dimensionals. Mm-hmm. And we're very concerned with with the quality of the steel, mm-hmm. and we got to have all of those right, or you don't get a good barrel. Okay, this is more of a caveat. Is is there a ammunition that's like SK or Center X or Ely? Is there an ammunition that you have a standard on, that, or do or is your barrels just general use? They should shoot all of those pretty well on the twenty two side. Some of the uh, how general it'll shoot different ammunitions is mostly some or a bigger portion of it by the chamber. Uh-huh. There is some that, you know, mattering on the chamber, we've had, uh, we put guns together that uh, standard velocity shot half minute and, at 100 yards out of one. 
you know, but the, but the, the chamber is slightly different than it would be in like a 52C or a Voodoo or anything like that. They're looking at it from the, from the, the style of bullet and the powder that's in there. So you can have little nuances like that. And if I knew the answer to all of that, I, I, we, we would be talking here from NASA, not from him here. <laughs> so, you know, I, we're, we always are striving to find things out. And it is a deal, and it's very surprising. I've had guys almost cry that we've had test guns built, and they go out there and they do all this huge extensive testing, 5, 10, 15, 20,000 rounds through this 22 rimfire barrel, and it works really well. And they say, this works really well. They give it back to me. I cut it in little one-inch pieces, and I measure absolutely everything in it, mm-hmm. which makes them cry because, you know, that's something you don't always necessarily get Mm-mm. on that. But what makes that work? So we try to find the things that make that work better than everything else mm-hmm. and go in that direction. We've been doing that for Voodoo for, you know, since day one for them, mm-hmm. trying to produce a better barrel, more consistent barrel. And it just goes out into the center fire. It's yeah. just the way it should be done. You walked us through your whole process, you know, manufacturing a barrel from start to finish. Was there any part of that we didn't ask when we were out there? Was there any part of that that's different if it was a 22 rimfire barrel? No. It's, okay. So no. gun drilling, lapping before and after all that. All that's all done with every okay. barrel that comes in and out of here. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, it's just the only way that you can be, we can be totally upfront. It's, it, it's a very, uh, you know, of course, we could have you guys in here for two weeks. We could get you tuned up and make barrels <laughs> mm-hmm. if you want to do that to get a little bit farther along on it. But there's all kinds of little nuances that you learn as you go along there mm-hmm. on the way the cutter's cut and what oh, yeah. you need to lap oh, yeah. and what, what has to be done here and what has to be done there. And one of the big things within here is is that it doesn't matter who's working with us at the time. If they don't like it or they don't understand it or I don't know why they get that, the big one, or if it's a mistake's been made, because they do is that we know that. Mm-hmm. And then we just take that and we move on and keep the quality as high as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. One thing you noticed instantly when you walk through your guys' shop, it's not necessarily a production line. No. Each, it's an individual barrel. You have an engineer, individual process. So we'll go you know, at each step. It's not just mm-hmm. next, next, next. And mm-hmm. that, that, to me, that's reassuring that if I'm going to buy one of your barrels that they've Absolutely. been taken care of. Oh, yeah, you'll be taken care of. And I'll be honest with you, over the years, we've had guys that have, uh, you know, of course, in the long-range stuff, the 6.5 Creedmoors, when they came out, were very popular. The mm-hmm. 6.547, I believe, was. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, 308s were was always out there. But have people that do certain things, and they say, I want a barrel just like the last one you got me. Mm-hmm. If they have a serial number, I can go ahead and build them a gun, a barrel that's as close as we physically can get to that. Mm-hmm. And have done that plenty of times where people just... You know, they want that works well for them, mm-hmm. you know, so we can get that close. And, you know, and it's not that everything is perfect. When you live in the world of one ten thousandth is an issue. Mm-hmm. So close is a, is, is a different closeness than, you know, it isn't everything isn't perfect when you start talking about yeah. one ten thousandth. Yeah, when you started calling it 500 millionths, I was like... Yeah, 50 millionths, yeah. 50, 50 millionths, yeah. yeah. Half a side, you know, you had to take a tenth out of a barrel and you... 50 millionths, wow. Yeah, yeah. you know, it's only 20 slices of a, the thickness of a, of a cigarette paper. Wow, that's <laughs> impressive. It's close. It's very close. When you guys, uh, when you serialize those barrels, are you stamping that in the uh, in the end? Yes, the, the, end, the end is okay. actually written on the end of the barrel. Okay, mm-hmm. well, we yeah. probably... We, we laser engrave, you know, the cartridge and the barrel length and twist rate when we're building rifles. And we ought to, at some point, we'll engrave your serial number. That'd be great. Just under that. Mm-hmm. That way, the, the life of the rifle is always. Yeah, it's always, it's, it, and it, you know, all, all the information we get back, whether it be good or bad, is good information as far as I'm concerned because we learn so much from it. Yeah. So we really like to have 
uh, people who have our guns, you know, to uh, have feedback from them mm-hmm. and see what we can do. If there's something we can do there to make things even better, because mm-hmm. that's if if you don't, I don't think if you stop striving for perfection, you'll never get there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think you just have to keep going and always look for that thing. We we do things uh, probably maybe to excess for some people, but again. I can pull a slip out with that serial number and tell you exactly who who built it, yeah. when it was drilled, when it was rifled, when it was lapped, how it was lapped, how many strokes were put in there to get that final lapping in there, how uh-huh. it was contoured, and anything that went on with that barrel. I can tell you that. And mm-hmm. I doubt very many barrel makers can do that. Mm-mm. But what I get out of that is if I sell you a barrel or I, you guys put one of our barrels on here and say, hey, it's not really working, I would first thing I would do. Let's go mm-hmm. back to that and see what's there. Mm-hmm. If I see something that isn't there, mm-hmm. because it's physically checked from one end to the other end, there's not, no stone left unturned on the inside of that barrel. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, being a, I shoot a lot, but I didn't know the barrel process. I didn't really realize on the lapping process, you're actually putting lead <laughs> into the barrel with some grit and running that sucker back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you guys kind of go through that? I'm sure for people that know about it, but for the layman kind of like me, the process of what you guys are doing? Yeah, so the hand-lapping process. Yeah, yeah the yeah. hand-lapping process. So basically what we're doing is you go in there and you cast a mold of the inside of the barrel. And we use a very specific mixture of lead-type metal, tin, to make sure that we get the right shrinkage on that mold so that we have the right clearance for the grit that we're using. Mm-hmm. So after that's cast in there, you then take that, you apply that lapping compound, which for uh, just drilled hole, that there is 220, and then finish lap is 320. You then apply that there, and then we have a set number of strokes. We go back and forth, a standard process, and then uh-huh. everything is checked at that point. I think we gotta we gotta paint the picture. So these guys have a these guys have a barrel chucked up in a vise, and they're sitting there with with you know a a, a cleaning rod of sorts that's mm-hmm. that's whittled down on the end that they've cast lead onto. And these guys are literally so the the term hand lapping that I'm excited because we just learned what it was was <laughs> these guys are literally stroking back and forth this this individually cast lead with some amount of 220 or 320 grit mm-hmm. paste on it. And they're fine. They're just making it as smooth as it can be by stroking back and forth. And it, what they say? Four, four sets of 20, mm-hmm. four a, sets of 20 yeah, strokes as, as an average. Yep. So something mm-hmm. like 80 strokes, you know, back mm-hmm. and forth, nice and smooth. And, and yep. we bore scoped one before and after, and you can definitely, definitely see the difference. Oh yeah. We want to have all of those lines running lengthwise with the, we want to run with the bullet. And not so, only are you hand lap, but you're, you're hand lapping right after you gun drilled. Then you're hand lapping again, well, gun drill and ream, yeah. then mm-hmm. hand lapped, then you're cutting the rifling, then you're lapping again. Correct. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Well, it's just surprising on what you get out of it when you, when you final lap it. Uh, you, you will see the dimensional somewhat change in there. And again, in, in all my years, I've always found that if you have maybe one, one and a half, ten thousandths worth of taper to the front of the mm-hmm. barrel. They seem to always shoot just a little bit better, maybe a little bit more consistent, take different ammunition. Mm-hmm. You know, different bullets mm-hmm. seem to shoot really fairly well in them. So we actually strive for that. And some people in 22 uh, rimfire for match-grade guns, they will actually come in and say, I want this contour, and I want the tight spot to be at 19 inches. We will make the tight spot or where it goes down at 19 inches for them. Huh. So they can, you know, you can maneuver some of it, uh-huh. but not a bunch. We yeah. are talking 10 thousandths of an inch. It's yeah. not a whole bunch. Yeah. Backing up before the lapping, you were talking about um, when you put the gun drill through it. You go, you're saying out of, out of round. What was that per inch 
Oh, uh, when we're talking office office center line, office center, sorry. Uh, center center yes. line, yeah. And industry standard is about one thousandths per inch. You know, a twenty eight inch blank turns out to be fifty six thousandths would be considered standard in the industry for gun hole drilling. We don't go much over twelve thousandths total indicator right mm-hmm. and the reason for that is is that when we sit down there and we didn't when you guys walked through, you didn't quite see all of that. That cutter head, as you well know, is mm-hmm. straight. Matter of fact, we spend great strain, pains in making that thing just as straight as we can possibly get it. And then we're going to put it in a curved hole. What the hell would you want to do that for? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the straighter the hole is, the more consistent the rifling is from one end to the other end. Mm-hmm. Because now you're not trying to bend something, you know, it's, it, it, it just doesn't work out very well. So what we get with that, with a straight hole and a hole that's the same size, is we get very, very consistent grooves from one end to the other end. Extremely consistent grooves. Mm-hmm. The other thing we get, because the wire cutter heads are made, we have no side play. So when you go in there, the groove width of the groove is exactly the cutter width. It's that close. And that is another thing that helps our barrels from being that, that copper fouling very bad. Most of the time, people get them and they never clean copper out of it till mm-hmm. they till they wore the you know powder wore the barrel out. You know, mm-hmm. tore the throat out. And that's we part of it. We also learned that four sixteen stainless is not stainless. <laughs> it's it's stain resistant, right? That is Tell stain, us about that. stain resistant. Yes. Yeah. The the problem with it is is if you use three hundred series stainless steel, it would it is just uh, not capable of handling the pressures. And everything that the 400 series, because it is a hardened product. Uh, and so in the process, they got to cut back some mm-hmm. on the nickel. And mm-hmm. they have to bring a little bit more carbon in there. So for all practical purposes, most people never have a problem with it being what it is. Because it is stain resistant. It's darn stain resistant. But I've had people over the years that have their guns up there in Alaska come back in there. They got brown on them. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's only so far. Yeah. It, it's a very dense product versus uh, chromoly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, that helps out a lot. Benchress like guys have always liked that. I always look at Benchress shooters and what they're doing to see what's what's working because them guys there are the epitome of accuracy and uh-huh. repeatability. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know, we to got, the we point. got one of those in the show. Yes, we yes <laughs> yeah, to, to the point they're almost crazy about it. Yeah. But, you know, you learn a lot from them guys because they, they try absolutely everything mm-hmm. and if they could find another thing to try they'll do that too mm-hmm. you know no yeah, yeah. On, I, on I thought the, the stain resistant thing was funny because we got guys that want to leave the <laughs> barrel ends blank you know ba- basically bare stainless steel because they believe it's it's impervious stainless. because it's stainless but as a matter of fact it's not Never it's not really. totally so, so no. not totally De- definitely be cerakoting your barrel ends there yes and on uh, the steel like you always hear in the well i always hear podcasts about the Rockwell hardness. Where's yours at, and what matters? What? Why does the hardness where you want it matter for the barrel? Well, one one of the things that we found over the years is, um, you know, you can have a range with with four sixteen R quite a ways. Uh, it doesn't show up in gun barrel steel very much at all because we do buy certified gun barrel quality steel. It all comes with a certification mm-hmm. as well as and a, just a little thing here. The serial number, we also know the lot of steel that it come from. So mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, we don't pile steel up in a big pile and just start using it. We have it all separated out. I know that as well because it can come into play. But uh, if you get your steel too hard, it's obviously very tough to cut. Nobody likes cutting hard barrels. You know, you get into 32, 33 block. Well, you can still build a really good barrel out of that. But it's tougher on everybody's tooling, ours included. If you go too soft, if we go down to the 25, 26, 27, that's now to the point that they heated it up 
in the tempering process and you're right on this edge and what happens with steel is is once it gets too far we get to this point here it drops off the other mm-hmm. end and gets real soft so what we found over the years is is we, we can't rely on uh, the steel mills to do that precise accurate of a job so what we've learned is we made our tooling work for 29 rockwell 28 29 30 rockwell it's a little tougher on tools but you got a better barrel it's got a better surface finish uh, it uh, is will have less hardened soft spots in it than you will if you go to some, something that's uh, a lower Rockwell, like 26, 25. And it, that way there we get a more reliable product. And technically, from a barrel life standpoint, it really has no bearing on it. It has to do with how we can machine it. And it's going to be a little stiffer, too. So that hmm. sometimes helps with the vibration nodes of the barrel as well. There were several parts of your, your process that were done by hand. You talked about where you could feel things in the steel that maybe a CNC may not feel, and it caused you to scrap some barrels here and there throughout mm-hmm. the process. Mm-hmm. What what benefits doing this by hand? Like at what stages doing it by hand do you do you potentially feel those issues that you might not feel, you know, using a, an automated process? Well, I, I don't, you know, it would come down to a little bit to actually the guys who are doing the work. You, mm-hmm. know, they, you yeah. know, the conscientious part of this and everything, uh, to make out the best product, the idea is, is that if we, if we, if you, if it's starting, if it's starting out a pig, it's probably going to end up a pig, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, obviously all along the processes, I don't think that anybody who's doing CNC equipment wouldn't be able to tell, but they may not be able to tell as well. One of the things is, is they are imparting. Sometimes their processes will impart stress into the barrel. So it may hide some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's very easy, you know, and, and again, you guys came out to the shop and, and looked through there. If we would have had a bad barrel there and you look through it when it was borelapped and it was bad, you would see where one side of it would still have the reamer marks on it. The other side would be clean. Mm-hmm. Well, why would that happen? Well, the steel was softer. It cut a little deeper there. Mm-hmm. So at that point there, that got, that's done. We won't even look at it again. It's in the scrap pile mm-hmm. because, frankly, we have, as far as we can tell, and it's proven out, soft spot. Another way that we find these often is so uh, in rifling. Because there, there, there's a little bit of stress there, you know. Obviously, you're cutting steel, uh, and uh, if it's soft, you'll get the the groove will be bigger there. Mm-hmm. So you know, again, you can't do that and have a good barrel. So mm-hmm. out the door it goes. All right, and then back on that Rockwell artist. I keep hearing these internet mess. You cannot work hard in a barrel shooting it. I don't know how much that would happen. You know, I, I guess there's, you know, some people may look at it, the stuff that we've, uh, I've looked at and studied in on this over the last almost 40 years is that technically, uh, barrel's good for five seconds. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's about all the more heat it can take and it's all rot, it's all cratered, alligatored out. You've, I'm sure you guys have seen that where the mm-hmm. alligator lines in there. That's technically not work hardening. That's just like a blowtorch being burned on it and it just finally cracks up. Five you seconds. Know? So Five if, we, seconds. if we calculate barrel time of a bullet at a certain velocity and we add all that up, we can calculate yeah. that. Well, it runs seconds. between 3.2 and, and 4.3 milliseconds. That's all the longer that I've it's never heard that. that. Now, now I'm thinking second about that tonight. Life. Five yep. second barrel life. You don't think of <laughs> it that way. <laughs> I'm going to add it up. You add it up. Let's find it. You may, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But, you know, that's what we came up with is the pop five seconds. Well, it's first. interesting to think about that as the actual the actual part of the barrel that the bullet's riding on, whereas most of the time it's the throat that'll burn out first because of right. the pressure and the heat, right? So you never really think about how many times the actual barrel can take a bullet passing through it. But we never... Really yes. get to that point, but Mark, five seconds. Yeah. Mark, I'm going to start using that in my catchphrase. I'm going to call you Mark five seconds. Five seconds, Mark. <laughs> five, you five got second five mark. seconds of barrel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> five second barrel life. Nice. 
That's a gem. Yeah. You know, talking about, so we moved through the process. So you, you, you hand lapped after it was gun drilled and reamed. Mm -hmm. And then we moved to the rifling machine. Right. You were telling me, you know, how many passes each rifling gets cut, whether it's four R, five R, six R. Uh, how many passes it takes. Talk about that rifling process. Well, you know, we, the, the the way that we've seemed to find in over the years is that there's a certain speed that you can cut those at, and there's a certain amount of depth of cut that you can take and uh, maintain very good smoothness and consistency from one end to the other. If if there's a problem with the steel, you won't get that anyway. But uh, at that point there, we're taking about two ten thousandths a pass. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, we're going to take multiple passes in there, mattering on how deep it is. You know, you can do the math, four thousandths deep and times, you know, divide yeah. by two ten thousandths is yeah, a pile of them. Yeah. You know, so we're in that 30, 30, 40 passes. It's a 45-minute to 50-minute operation. What is that landing groove? Di- what is the normal landing groove difference? Is it eight thousandths or you're looking at most of them, and I, I prefer to do that. We we haven't got into like uh, why we would do that, but most of the time I like my center fire barrels to be four thousand steep. And one of the reasons for that is is as we just got done talking about, you know, the gases burn burn the throat out. Mm-hmm. Okay, and most people don't understand that they're about fifty five hundred to six thousand degrees. Mm-hmm. That's what that is in there, but it's only there for three milliseconds. You know. Mm. But uh, the more the more groove you have, more land you have sticking up, you know, mm-hmm. the longer it lasts. Mm-hmm. It just mm-hmm. lasts longer. This is a caveat to this. I do this a lot, so no problem. So they, people take powder, like let's say Vitaviori five seventy. Mm-hmm. It's really hot powder mm-hmm. against like an H one thousand, and they're saying you're getting about twenty five percent less barrel life because that five seventy is hotter. Do you, what do you read into that? Do you? It's basically like a double base powder yeah, versus double, a single, single base yeah, powder. Yeah, yeah. Higher yeah. heat, higher you pressure. You know, when you're talking higher heat, higher pressure, and, you know, of course, that goes down to burn rate of the individual powder. Mm-hmm. It's uh, uh, one of those things there that you're, most of the time, you're going to get so many pounds of powder through that gun. You might get a little bit of hotter powders, may have less. And then again, I've seen that where that hasn't been a truth, you know. So obviously, mm-hmm. the reason why there's all the different cartridge configurations that we see for one caliber is I think that's one of the things we're trying to do is is come up with a way to get more out of the gun mm. in longer time. You know, um, probably do see some in the studies that we've done with like, let's say, H1000 mm-hmm. and let's say Varget. We're using 30 caliber barrels. And, you know, the Varget's gonna, is gonna, it not going to have uh, the throat eroded as far out as you would with H1000 because it just plain old every day takes longer to burn H1000. So gotcha. there's a little bit more lag time little farther out but will they both eat it out yeah and do you think case design i mean we're getting a little off top the case design has anything to do it like with against a short mag against like a 300 rum or you know compared to a short fat 300 wsm yeah well you know the you know the bench rest guys have always said short and fat is where it's at for the cartridges and i, I, I think agree. there's some of that i agree yes <laughs> <laughs> so do i <laughs> But, uh, you know, it's a, it's a deal there that um, I think there's been such increases in the qualities and burn rates of powders in the last 15 mm-hmm. years compared to before mm-hmm. that uh, cartridge case design can play a factor in that. Mm-hmm. You know, if, you, if, you, if we go back far enough, uh, you look at most cartridge cases were long and sloping, and then most people don't understand why that was that way. But when we go to the people who really designed most of this, believe it or not, it's the British and the French. Mm-hmm. They were using cordite. They were using sticks of it. It looks like pencil lead. And they got better burn rates and more consistency with long, shallow necks. That's the reason why we started there. Once we get into the other powders and cordite, 
is really there's nothing out there that we have today that even would would emulate uh, cordite. Uh, the way the powder burns becomes significantly different. So, you know, over the periods, the less powder you put in the case to get the same result, better off you are. Yeah. Just out of just yeah. out of how much powder you burn, and yeah, that's and, I, and that's where. Yeah, and I know like 300 rum is going to burn out before a 300 WSM, all being considered. But if you were to build a short, fat 300 rum, same capacity, does that case design? I mean, does that case design lead to longer barrel life? I guess is it could to a certain extent, but I don't know if it, if we're we're trying to pencil in. Mm-hmm. We, we can probably do it on paper, but where would it end up in the actual? You know, yeah. out in the field would really take a, a awful lot of barrels. Let's talk about yeah. barrel cleaning. Barrel cleaning? Barrel cleaning. Oh, yeah. barrel cleaning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The barrel cleaning thing is always brought up in the fact that the break-in pro- – there's two different schools of thought. The break-in process, you know, is it shoot one, clean it, shoot three, clean it, shoot whatever. And then the other side of the camp is I clean it at 100 rounds, and then I clean it when it doesn't shoot straight anymore. Mm-hmm. Or, or, do you, or, what, or, I, or I shoot it until the velocity stabilizes. Yes, yes, yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's there's going to be some of that because part of part of the velocity is created by as the barrel gets burnt in the back. It's going to mm-hmm. make it's going to make a difference. So you're going to see a little bit of maybe a velocity increase. Most of the time there there isn't very much. It's negligible. But as far as breaking in the whole, the whole barrel. You really don't. There's nothing there. We've already made that thing way smoother than you with can the, shoot with it that out. hand lapping process. Yeah, yeah. it's way smoother. And then, and most people who use their barrels comment that they never get copper fouling ever. Not even it right off the bat. Mm-hmm. We've had guys right. come in here and go, "Well, I took it out and I shot it, and I didn't get any copper, and then I shot five of them, and I didn't get any copper, and I shot twenty of them, and I didn't get any copper." I says, "Well, you're done cleaning your gun. Go out and shoot it. You know, <laughs> have some fun with it. That's yeah. what it's here mm-hmm. for." So there is a little bit of break in, especially with throats. And, you know, throats have gotten pretty long, you know, with a very, very, you know, shallow angle. So mm-hmm. that can play a little bit in, in that break in period, too, because it's probably going to be rougher than the board. That's what I mean. Um, so you're breaking off those little minute pieces. Is mm-hmm. that what you're doing? The first couple inches of that throat? I think so, okay. for the most part, because, you know, as well as they make reamers today, and they do make really great reamers. Uh, you know, there still can be a little bit of a of an edge on one side and have seen that, you know, and of course, as you all well know, when you get into more of a production gun, they don't they don't cut 10 chambers and resharpen their reamers. They cut until the reamers mm-hmm. ready to hit the scrap bucket. Mm-hmm. So there'd be more apt to see more of that on a high production gun than there would be on something handmade like you guys are mm-hmm. putting out. You, you wouldn't you wouldn't let a reamer go that far. You guys yeah. would say, nah, this thing's garbage. So if we assume good gunsmithing, you know, a straight chamber cut well, there's really no break-in process. No, no, no we've uh, never had, we've never advocated it on our barrels. Okay. So you got a hundred rounds through it and still shooting good. When, when would you guys recommend When do you clean your rifle while it's shooting good? Yeah. While it's shooting good? See, that's a, re- that's a pretty big question in, in the fact that there's so many people that have results with so many different ways of doing it. You know, uh, most I've had guys say, well, I clean it every 400 rounds. If we, if we go back to, uh, you know, to uh, building uh, uh, SWAT team rifles, sniper rifles and stuff like that, they don't, they get shot more in practice than they are any other time, you know. Mm-hmm. So those guys, they're going to sit down there and they want their gun at, at a certain spot. Mm-hmm. So they'll go out there and they'll do their practice. They'll clean their gun. Then they go out and shoot five or six more rounds, put it in the case and just ready to go. Because we know, Brand new clean oil boiler is not the same as a dirty one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at the point of if you're not getting fouling, yeah. that's one thing to know, and you're not getting any kind of copper fouling. How? Why would you? You wouldn't really need to clean it. No, like you're the more guys, to. 
Ventro's guys basically know once they've shot their rifle enough, they know that after 50 rounds, accuracy begins to suffer. So they're yep. on a very strict cleaning regimen of every 45 rounds right. they clean, for example. And mm-hmm. most of the time we're telling guys if, if it's still shooting, you know, leave it alone. Let yeah. it rip. Yeah. 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 Have you guys ever got a barrel back in that you could see was damaged from cleaning? Oh, yes. You can get those back in. Yeah, you do. It usually comes down to people wanting to take a process to do something that we've already done very, very accurately and try mm-hmm. to try to en- enhance that. That might be fire lapping. That might be going in there with some kind of compound because they want you know to be this really smooth bore in there, which is already mm-hmm. there's a number to have in there. It's a, the reason we use the grits we do is because of uh, if we go any finer, then you start having copper fouling. If you go any any coarser. You have mm-hmm. copper fouling. So the answer is that we came up with this this spot there in the middle. And then people want to try that. Or they're trying to do something mm-hmm. crazy. That Another thing, I started reloading when I was a little kid. And I never really heard the term copper ring till the last 15 years. Which mm-hmm. is that, obviously it does exist. What Carbon ring. Carbon, carbon ring. Yeah. yeah, carbon rings. Yeah, you can yeah. get those. But, you know, again, it's one of those things there um, uh, that... Uh, it has to do with how that powder's burning in there. And we're going to, I'm going to take you back here way, way before all of this stuff is going. The big dog thing at the time, and we're going to go back uh, probably 25 years, is the, the 378 Weatherby case necked down to mm. 338. Mm. I built a pile of those. You guys are still building those. Yeah, no, they're still, oh, say, you know, they monsters. do. But, yeah. you know, we sat down there and we were using basically bulk cannon powder. Uh-huh. You know, uh, WC <laughs> Hold on. Bulk cannon powder. Yeah. Just pouring to the top and knocking it off? Damn near. <laughs> Damn near. You know, and we were getting we were getting responsive results through the 300 grain um, uh, Sierra Match uh-huh. Kings. Mm-hmm. You know, and we were getting them up there in that three grand range, which is pretty good for that big bullet. Mm-hmm. And especially at that time. Mm-hmm. But uh, you would get a carbon ring, and the reason for it is, it's not only it's, is that it, you know we're using basically a ball powder, which is more apt to do that. We're really not generating enough pressure to completely burn the powder. Mm. I think that's a portion of that. Mm-hmm. And you know, as you guys know already, that there's a lot of people. You got this case here; they want to burn H1000. They might try something even slower than that. You know, they're looking at quote unquote, as it said before, a gentle, easy ride down the bore, less wear, all of that kind of thing. But if it doesn't completely consume when it needs to consume mm-hmm. it's going to be there and i've seen carbon rings even 25 30 years ago from that mm-hmm. people back off on a powder charge or whatever like that and it's not burning consistent it isn't burning as clean and consistent mm-hmm. and uh, all of a sudden you got a ring you can't even put the next bullet in i've seen mm-hmm. guys where they and they pull it out it looks like they're cleaning the muzzle loader well, it's black you know from the carbon in there i've seen that at the shop we have a uh, a 20 inch barreled 300 rum rifle it's been out hunting for a few years now and I don't really clean it too much, and it burns 98 grains of N570 in 20 <laughs> inches. Now, we built that rifle. All the guys said, well, you can never you can never get your extreme spreads low enough because the powder's not being burnt all the way through. So we did a test from 94 grains to 100 grains of N570 in single-grain increments mm-hmm. and monitored a, a almost exactly 40 feet per second velocity increase every grain from 94 to 100 40 feet per second in between each grain so that's telling you that it must be burning all the powder otherwise you wouldn't see that that That, average increase all the way across all the way to 100 so the loader ended up settling at at 98 grains never had a carbon ring guns a hammer kills everything you pointed at mm -hmm. and we've never had an issue it's you know we don't clean it um there's always you know like these exceptions we have 33 xc's now that are burning 118 grains of n570 in 24 inches mm-hmm. and still no carbon ring mm-hmm. issues to date 
Um, but yeah, N five seventy. N five. Well, if you're burning that much, it's probably pretty hot. But mm-hmm. That's the idea. The That's rec- what you want it to do. Mm-hmm. Recommendation: Get a carbon ring. How do you clean it out? There's there's different carbon busters out there. Uh, you know, as far as cleaning them out, um, and, you know, some of the chemicals we would use in here, you, you wouldn't, you can't buy off the shelf. Mm-hmm. You know. So, you know, there, I know that there's plenty of uh, materials out there that will clean that. Some of the foul-out products work really well, something that gets time to sit in there uh-huh. and soak. Most of the time it isn't out, like, like you know, in a second. So you guys are using a reamer, right? They're going with a reamer just by hand and kind of just twist it twist a couple it. times. Yeah. And, well, it, it is hard. It's yeah. very hard. Mm-hmm. And I would call that the last resort. Yeah, Because mm-hmm. you can cause a lot of damage <laughs> there if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, you could increase your headspace if you're careful, yeah. which is no fun. Yeah. All right. Well, we'd be uh, probably one of the last things on there I'm thinking is you've talked, we talked about four methods of rifling, button, broach, hammer forged, and the way you guys do it, cut barrel mm-hmm. or cut riflings. Why do you use the cut over the other three? You know, I have done the other, the other styles of rifling and they do, they all have their limitations. And even what we do has a limitation to a certain extent. Our big limitation is how fast you can turn them out. You can't turn them out as fast as you can, let's say button rifling or a brooch rifled or hammer forged. They come out a lot quicker. So they're very popular when you start looking at high production rates, which is not what we're really about. We're build, we're about building something that's correct. Um, I, the reason we do it is we never impart any stress in the barrel, mm-hmm. ever. In any process that we use, there is no stress imparted. So it goes back to those two ten thousand cuts, you know. So if mm-hmm. you had four thousand deep, you know, five passes per thousand. So you're passing twenty thousands just to cut one groove. Twenty passes just yeah. to cut one groove. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, and and the you know cutter configuration and how sharp it is and all that has a lot to do with that. But at the same time, if you maintain your tools correctly. You, you end up with something that's very versatile because you could come to me and you could say, hey, we're building a 338 project, but we don't want a 1 in 9. We want a 1 in 8.7. Mm-hmm. I'd say, okay. So I'd just cut it out for you because I have the versatility with a cut rifle barrel that. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we have is that they've gotten better at it. I'm sure of this. Uh, but button rifling, when you pull a button through there, if you are not if you're not forcing that button to move, because it's basically got a helix in there, and I don't know if you've seen any of those. I don't have one here to show you, but when, when you start that out, that thing doesn't want to turn. It's no different than a bullet. Mm. So you could be having a 1 in 10 barrel can start out at 1 in 11, mm. and then it ends up being at 1 in 10. And some people say, okay, interest is good, but how much do you want to smear the side of the bullet? Mm-hmm. You know, so here we have something that our grooves are extremely consistent from one end to the other, and our lands are, are consistent from one end to the other. So when we go in there, we are engraving. Mm-hmm. You know, we're mm-hmm. looking at somewhat cutting, and, and that's been brought up a little bit where real thin jacketed bullets can be cut by that, and it certainly does. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it doesn't disturb the bullet as much as one that has to be, let's say, mashed into place, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So the reason for that is, uh, you know, cut rifling is first of all multiple grooves. You can have we can have we can make anything in there from however many grooves somebody would really want. Mm-hmm. You know the depth of cut. We can control that, and um, we also get the opportunity to adjust the twist rate because of our equipment uh, very mm-hmm. precisely, literally, literally to a hundredth of a turn mm-hmm. if we wanted to. So why you know four R five R six R five R seems to kind of be the industry standard at this point. What what people have settled on? Why would one be better than the other as far as a, you know an accurate shooting rifle? 
You know, when it comes to like the five R rifling and stuff like that, where it's radius, we we've um, uh, it, it works and it works rather well. Sometimes you have problems with very long uh, bearing surfaces on bullets because they want to overpressure. Because usually, like a five R radius rifle, you know, kind of barrel will need more grab. Is one of the things that a lot of people don't look at, I guess, and maybe, uh, you know, I'm, it may be up for debate, would be that when we make a standard rifling, which is what we use in here, you know, it's basically okay, what they so call the, ballard rifling. Yeah. Okay, so ballard rifling. That's which versus, is a square, yeah, versus uh, uh, radius rifling. Yeah, you know, there's radius a, meaning just the sharp corners around it. Well, they actually, if you look in it's there, the it's all edges. it's all been rounded. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and you know, the, the, there's there's a reason five R uh, rifling is is um, uh, when you go to cut it in there. You know, you you have to be very careful on how you measure. What was that word that. you said again for your style of rifling? Ballard. Actually, Ballard. this goes back to Ballard Rifle Company in back in the 1870s. Okay. So I looked at it from that standpoint that if we sit down here and we've had all of the, you know, the 5R rifling, there's ratchet rifling, as you well know, there's Alexander Henry rifling, there's oval rifling, there's all of this stuff. But why all that stuff's being developed? This was already out there by the Ballard Company, and it's still the mainstay today. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you got a hundred and some years, 130, 40 years of that rifling showing and proving itself. So it's there, really hard to sit down there and say, I'm going to come up with something better. Right. And that's, is that in pretty much every barrel now? Like from every barrel manufacturer? That style of Ballard style? Uh, well, not necessarily. When you look at 5R, that's a, that's a different thing. That was something that uh, Boots Obermeyer basically came up with and it be, it became kind of popular here in the last few years you know probably the last five seven maybe ten years it really feels like if you get out of the competition scene 5r seems to be the standard like it's almost it's the default when you're ordering a barrel if you don't specify something different yeah yeah you know what like i said we're basically doing standard rifling mm-hmm. and you know we've had really good results with it all along mm-hmm I guess no, all that no. matters is if it shoots or not. That's all that matters. It's you know, all that matters. You know, yeah. the, the hunter that goes and orders a custom rifle, he doesn't ask what type of rifling is going to no. be in the barrel. He's like, how good is it going to shoot? Some of them mm-hmm. do know what you end to point with. <laughs> um, everybody says, like, if you're going to flute a steel barrel, it needs to be a cut rifling. Why is that? Well, one of the reasons when you start looking at, like, uh, button rifle barrels especially would show up in there is when you do that, you're basically taking a hole. Because we were out there looking at a hole. Uh, if we're looking at a thirty caliber hole, it's 300 thousandths. And then what we're going to end up doing is take a button, which has grooves cut in it, the reverse of the rifling, and it's going to be about 311 to 312 thousandths in diameter. And we're going to pull that from one end of the barrel to the other end. When that's going on, you can put your hand on the barrel and feel when that button goes through that inch and a quarter piece of steel. That's how mm. much it deflects. Really? So at that, oh yeah. So is it at that point there, you've already imparted this monster pile of stress. So if you're building good barrels, and these guys do that, don't don't get me wrong, they're going to go out there and they're going to have to stress relieve that before they do anything else to it, or otherwise it'll turn into a noodle or mm-hmm. you know warp or whatever like that. You never really get that out of there because when you do button rifle, you displace metal, but you don't let give it a place to go. You know, mm-hmm. and, and so at that point there, when you start fluting something and fluting with a good, with a cutter, a nice sharp cutter and all of that kind of stuff will not impart any stress, mm-hmm. but it will relieve stress. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? So yeah. when we, when we look at a cut rifle barrel, we've never added any stress to it. So we shouldn't really have much of a problem. Now there can be some problems when people want to get overzealous and, and, uh, flute way too deep. 
for the size of gun and the caliber because mm-hmm. you can actually start fluxing the the steel at the bottom of that mm-hmm. that radius and can i've seen where there's cracks start showing up in the in the in the fluting mm-hmm. but it's very com- uncommon you know it, and of course as we know everything if this is good this is better so you know <laughs> sometimes you yeah. got to stop there and say okay we can't go any farther than yeah. this in fluting and most guys by now that flute they know that stuff so we're going to do a we're going to do a test we're going to take a, a perfectly straight ace barrel we're going to send it out for fluting then we're going to come back here we're going to remeasure the same barrel using their quality control process yes. to it, see if anything has changed and and i'm just telling i've heard this can't be done but mark and nathan said it can be done if there's any kind of physical difference on the inside it can be measured and how are you measuring it we're measuring everything with, uh, at this point here, we use dial bore gauges. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the only reason for that is you get a better feel with that than you mm-hmm. do with anything else. Paint, and, uh, paint a picture for them what a dial bore gauge is as you're measuring the inside of the barrel. If, if we were measuring inside the barrel, a, a dial bore gauge has a, a, a very, very, very accurate jeweled um, gauge on it that's about two inches in diameter. And that's good for ten thousandths of an inch all the way around. So they're, fair, they're fairly close. And on the end of this, we have a prong that's that's set into a, a, a standard that is traceable to the National Bureau of Standards, and we set that for a zero for the size we really want it to be. Mm-hmm. Then when we run that in there, how we, long is that probe? That probe goes half one halfway to the middle, a little bit past middle on all of our barrels. Okay. So we got, we can we actually because they don't make them any longer than that, or you're not reliable. So we got to do this end. And then we go over and do the back end. Really? So mm-hmm. you're sticking this long probe down the inside of the barrel. Mm-hmm. And then so the same thing, the same way that we look at run out when we're dialing a barrel in. It's it's somewhat similar. thing, just, just yeah. much further. So we're using, it's called like Intrepid. Mm-hmm. I think Intrepid is the Yeah, brand, Intrepids but, are very good. Are yeah. very good. All of ours are built by Tessa, which are out, out of Germany, very high quality tools. Okay. You know, and uh, there's other things we do with that as well. We can go in there. Obviously, we can check the bore size. We can also check the groove size, but we can also check the groove from one side to the other side okay. so I can tell how much different it is from one side to the other side. You know, if you ever slugged a bore and you go in there and you measure it and of course you go over the top of the uh, where the where the grooves are you, what you really need to do is go from one edge of the groove to the other edge of the groove. Because there's, there's mm-hmm. a couple things here that people may not understand and it becomes a deal for us in here is, is that when we build a cutter okay, it's got to be really, really close because we try to hold that if we have a 308 diameter from one side to the other side of that, we want it to be one ten thousandth or less difference from one side to the other. Mm-hmm. So then our tools are gauged till we get that number there or closer. And so then frankly, a lot of them, especially like a four group tool, they're pretty much dead on because mm-hmm. you, you need that to make a good barrel. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure most cut rifle barrels do the same thing, mm-hmm. but we check it all and we have tools to do that. When you said you guys check your bore diameters and, and I hear this all the time about air gauges. You said they weren't as precise as the way you did it. We we don't like the air gauges. There's a lot of things you got to do. We do so many different twist rates. You got to have a huge pile of heads and stuff like that for uh-huh. all the different things. And at this point here, we haven't found anything that's done any better for us. And it's done all the time. Mm-hmm. If we have an air gauge, we're going to have to leave that in a room that there's no dust or anything flying around in it. Mm-hmm. So that would be like a final quality control. But by the time we went that far there, it's been it's been checked four or five times oh. from one end to the other end. Mm-hmm. And so at this point here, we don't see it. If we haven't seen it by then, we're not going to see it at all. You know, it'll just be there. Sounds like you guys have a pretty meticulous process. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's crazy meticulous to the point that most people would say you're... Um, 
you're doing too much. You're taking too much time with this. Mm-hmm. But what we do have is we have people on the floor that are qualified enough to run those those that equipment at any one time. So it's very easy for us to have those there. The standards are right out there. They're being used in the same temperature as the barrels being built in a very critical thing because mm-hmm. if you have a if you have an inspection room that's let's say uh, it's 76 in your production floor 66 four millionths per degree per inch is what metal to steel expands and contracts mm. so you don't think about that till you mm. start looking at 40 millions we're already at a half a tenth yeah there's a lot of things today that i haven't thought about me neither <laughs> Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's, you know, the idea to when way we went through this thing here is from a tool and die standpoint and from an accuracy standpoint of what we're machining. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing is we're building really accurately machined barrels. Oh. And it seems to show up. It seems to be the way to go. We came in here today. These guys are doing it by hand the best way it can be done. That's what we talk about ammo, too. You know, it's yes to walk in here and see barrels being made this way to me is uh, uh, refreshing. Yeah. Because in the world of CNC and everything else and every you know, handmade. Well, I've, I've been to a couple of big production facilities and this ain't it. This yeah. is one at a time. This is one at a time. Each one counts. Yeah. Everything so, counts when it goes out the door. So how do guys get an ace barrel to put on their rifle? Well, they can go to info at acebarrels.com and, okay. and uh, start a conversation and we'll see what we can help them out with. Okay. Ultimately, we'll have some people that may have those on the shelf for them. And yep. we're, not, we're not that far far behind, and it okay. may work better for them that way. But right now, they can definitely get a hold of us at, at you know, info at acebarrels.com. And that's, Nathan manages that? Most of the time. Yeah, that would be me. All mm-hmm. right. Do you guys have any place to be stocked, like Instagram or Facebook? Uh, Facebook. Okay, Ace yeah. Barrels at, on Facebook, yep. Okay, mm-hmm. and, and a new Instagram you're going to start pretty quick so we can start tagging you on all these builds. Yep, that's the next one yeah. up, yeah. that yeah. and then YouTube. Nice. Yeah, just thought I'd love to work with you guys here. Yeah. If you've got a special project, we're always into that. I'm working with one guy that we're trying to figure out how we're going to be accurate with a 6.5 out to about a mile and a half, which is a ways. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, if you got something special, you know, it's always a way for us to learn Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes, like I said, all information's good, even if it's it's a bad turnout. Mm-hmm. You know, so we love to work with projects like that. Nice, nice. Yeah, help out. Yep. Find out knowledge. Knowledge is everything in this business here and experience. Is there anything we didn't ask you? You guys want to throw on the table? No, I think we basically covered everything. Pretty much, yeah. You know, we're just like I said, we're we're a handmade barrel company. We build things from hand, and we have skilled people to do this and we trust our skilled people to turn out the best because frankly it is their product just as much as it is mine mm-hmm. and uh, so everybody takes that very seriously if we have a problem with the barrel it's an issue in here yeah. we're very very much responsive to that nice mark nathan thanks for taking the time thank you oh, appreciate yeah. you guys yeah you're welcome thanks for having us on yep